Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this uh, series of messages, we are looking at the unique assignments that God has given us as a church. We're calling these assignments God dreams. And here's our definition of a God dream. It is a vision of the future that begins first in the mind of God and then is given to us. Now, we all dream about the future, but church is the unique place where God calls us to dream his dreams and then work together to see those dreams become reality. Now, whenever God gives us a vision of the future, it's usually presented to us inside of a frame. In other words, it has limits to it. God's dreams obviously are very large, but we are limited. And so God gives us a doable part of what he is wanting to accomplish in the future. And the frame that marks the doable limits has four sides to it, like all frames do. The first side that we began looking at is our mission. This simply answers the what question. It's just a simple sentence that helps focus and clarify what it is that God has called us to do. Here's our sentence, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. And then we looked at the next side, which is our values. turns out that God is not just interested in what we do, but it's very important to him why we do it. And so this answers the why question. What are our motives? What moves us forward in this, this dream? And then we looked at the strategy side. And this answers the how question. How are we going to do this? If we're going to get traction and make progress on this, what set of behaviors are we going to practice that will allow us to make progress? And then the last couple of weeks, we've turned our attention to the last side, which is the measures side. And this answers the when question. We can set a dream, but if we we don't know when we're going to be successful, then we're really not able to measure whether we're on track and whether we're making progress or not. And so this answers this question. If this dream is realized, what is it going to look like? What will it look like? Actually, the question is not so much what will it look like, but what will we look like? And that's important to understand because inanimate objects like buildings and programs are very helpful tools, but they are never the point in what God wants us to accomplish. It's always about people. In Galatians 5.14, we see this summarized in this verse. It says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to summarize all of the requirements of God, it can be summarized in this simple sentence, love your neighbor as yourself. What this means is the specific dreams that God gives us are always framed by this command. If the dream is growing us in love, then we are succeeding. Now, we tend to think of love, particularly in this culture, as an emotion, which makes it pretty impossible to measure. How can you measure the amount of love? Is it just a feeling that kind of comes and goes like the fog that makes it really hard to to quantify? But in the Bible, love is not so much an emotion. It's a clearly defined set of activities. And it's measured in three categories. And we've been looking at these three categories. First, it's measured in how we relate to others. This is the one-on-one part of love. We can't control what other people do. But what's the quality of relationship that we offer in a one-on-one context? That was the first area that we looked at. And then love is also measured in how we team together. God has created us in a way that we are social beings and we need to work together. And so that that introduces a whole set of dynamics of love where we have to figure out how are we going to work together as a team? And so we looked at that last week. And now today we're going to look at the, the last part, and that is share the gospel. If we are being transformed by Christ it's going to show up in these three ways. It'll be demonstrated in these three ways. But particularly today, we're going to look at how to share the gospel. If we really love people, we're going to tell them the good news about Jesus. The word gospel means good news. And it does refer to the good news about the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus Christ. 
So we read this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. The apostle Paul writing this says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So he says, we loved you so much, and it showed up in these two ways. We shared our lives with you, but we also shared the gospel with you. Now, we don't normally think of telling people about Jesus as an act of love. And that's because, honestly, most people don't receive it that way. You try to tell someone about your faith in Christ, and they might perceive it as you thinking that you're better than them, which, of course, is not true. Or it might maybe just be kind of an irritating reminder of maybe some guilt they feel and they're trying to ignore. But if, like me, you are convinced that this is true, that the God of the Bible is real, and that the evidence surrounding the life of Jesus Christ is compelling and true, then the most loving act of all would be to thoughtfully invite the people around us to at least consider the gospel. Because what's at stake If this is true, what's at stake is not their feelings, not our feelings, but eternity either with or without God. Now, if this is not as real as the ground we walk on and the air we breathe, then it would be foolish to risk ruffling any feelings over something like this. I mean, if this is just one of many man-made set of ideas that are used to help people feel better about themselves, then by all means... We should just keep our mouths shut. So this sharing the gospel aspect of love always begins with this very critical question, how real do you think this is? And this is only a question you can answer for yourself and only I can answer for myself. But if, like me, you have decided that this is real, then the question shifts to, so how can we share the gospel of Jesus Christ to a very, very increasingly skeptical world about these matters. So this morning, I want to share with you three suggested steps in how you and I might do this more effectively. And before I share these three steps, I want you to think of someone um, in your life that as far as you can tell, they have yet to decide to follow Jesus Christ. Um, And I want you to to get this name in your mind. You might even, if you're taking notes, write it off to the side, but this is just for you. Don't share this with anyone. But I want you to think of this person as we talk through these three steps, because it's more helpful for you to think of these three in terms, not of just theory, but in terms of how would I do this with this individual? How would I take these steps? So again, think of someone that as far as you know, they have not decided to follow Jesus Christ. And then as we go through these, I want you to keep this person in your mind. So let's begin. Step number one, imagine a new future for them in Christ and pray to that end. Second Corinthians 5, 16 through 17 says this. So from now on, again, the apostle Paul writing, from now on, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. What Paul is saying is, I used to think of Jesus very differently than I do now. So I used to think of Jesus from a worldly point of view. He used to think that Jesus was just another one of the Messiah frauds that were coming through time in Palestine at this point. And then he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. 
And from that point on, he became convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He was not a fraud, that he was God in flesh, and that everything he said and did was, was true. And this change in perspective about Jesus didn't just change what he thought of Jesus. It ended up changing his perspective on life in its entirety. And he's saying here that the biggest change of all was how he viewed everyone he saw from that point forward. What he's saying is because I, I stopped viewing Jesus Christ from a worldly point of view, I stopped viewing everyone else from a worldly point of view. These two are linked. So what is a worldly point of view? Well, a worldly point of view is just simply using what you can see in this world as you observe the people in your life. It's using only the visible labels that we use to help us think and talk about the people around us. So I'm in the bank this last week, and I am called forward by the teller, and I look at this teller, and I think two things, a teller and a woman, two very accurate labels for this person who was serving me at the bank. That's appropriate. But that's just kind of a worldly point of view. Or maybe you're working with someone this week and they walk in your office and you identify them by name. You recognize them as a fellow coworker. Again, another worldly point of view, which is fine. Or someone cuts you off in traffic and you identify them as another one of the many bad drivers that are on the roads these days. Or you're in a restaurant and someone serves you uh, and you recognize that they are your waiter or waitress. But what Paul is saying is, I began to see more than just this. These are accurate designations or labels, but I began to see more than just what you can see with your naked eye. I began to wonder what was true of them on the inside. So rather than just, oh, look, a, a bank teller, it's, look, here's someone created in the image of God who, like me, is marching towards eternity, either they're going to march towards an eternity in separation from God or in his presence. I wonder what's true of them. Here in front of me is not just someone who's serving me food, but here is an eternal soul created by God and of equal value with me. And I wonder what's true of them. Their eternity is hanging in the balance. And this may be the last time I see them or the only time I see them. I wonder what's true of them at a soul level. I wonder if they know of God's love for me or for them in Christ. Now this changes how we view people. But it not only changes how we view them in the moment, it also changes how we imagine their future might be. And that's why Paul says at the end here, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. You see, we use visible labels not only to categorize people and identify them, but also to inform our imagination about their future. We tend to size people up, and then based on the trajectory of what we see and what we know of their past, we plot a likely future for them. So if they're working at a dead-end job, we tend to assume that you know, they don't have much initiative and they're never going to accomplish much. Or if they have a history of addiction or a history of deception or a history of laziness, then we assume, well, that's always going to be true of them. And the data actually supports that conclusion. You've probably heard the phrase, the best indicator of future behavior is what? Past behavior. And that's because that's true. If someone has a history of lying, they're probably going to lie. If someone has a history of laziness, they're probably going to be lazy. 
And this is why it's naive to hire or to marry someone, say, for example, with a history of laziness. You would be foolish to think, yeah, you know, all of the previous jobs, this person really hasn't had much initiative. But, you know, we had a great interview, and I think they really like this company. So I think the moment they begin working for us, they're going to stop being lazy. No, that's naive. They're going to probably keep being lazy. It would be foolish to marry someone with that same thought. You know, I know they've never really held a solid job, and I, and I know they really don't work very hard, but, you know, I, I just love them, and they love me. And so I think that they're going to become a completely different person the moment that we get married. Yeah, it's just not true. That's a very naive approach to life. But there is one big exception to this well-documented rule of history. The rule of history is the way people were in the past is an indicator of the way they're going to be in the future. There's one big exception to this, one big if, and that's what it says here in this verse, if anyone is in Christ. Well, now, if that's true, then a new factor is introduced into that life. And that new factor in Christ is the power of God is now present to begin to do something different, to create something beautiful out of whatever the wreckage of the past has been. Now, let me be clear, this is not like magic, where without any effort, a new person just kind of suddenly emerges like a phoenix out of the ashes without any effort at all. No, that, that's not how a new creation in Christ works. It's more like a small but very powerful seed that if nurtured, can grow into a tree that dominates the entire garden. If it's not nurtured, if there's no help or support given and no steps taken, then it can remain a very small seed and a really small plant. But if someone is in Christ, something brand new on the order of a new creation has now been introduced in that life. This big if is what turned Paul from being someone who put people to death to someone who started churches in the first century. Now that's, that's a big change. No one saw that coming. In this room, as I look around, there are many people in this room who are not anything like they used to be years ago, decades ago, and still would be without Christ. Now, none of us are perfect, but there's some really different things that have happened in people's lives because of Christ. So what this means is that everyone that we see, no matter how bad the history data is, everyone we see is just one decision away from a big change, from something completely new. But that requires imagination. We have to see more than what the eyes see. We have to see beyond just a worldly point of view. And the best aid to that kind of imagination is to pray for them. It's as we pray for people that if we're going to say more than just God help them, if we're going to say more than that, then we're going to have to begin to see them the way God sees them. We're going to have to begin to see beyond just the data that they've put down in life so far to see what God might do in this person's life. So this is why this first step is first imagine a new future for them in Christ and pray to that end. We need to imagine this. So in Colossians 4, 2 through 3, we read this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us too. Again, the apostle Paul is writing this, that God may open a door for our message. He's speaking of the gospel here so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. 
Paul says, I, I want you to pray that God would open a door for the gospel, for this message. Now, if you go to someone's house, the first thing you do is ring the doorbell or knock on the door. You don't just stand outside and start talking. It's the same thing when it comes to the gospel. You start by knocking on the door. You start by praying for that individual if you have an opportunity to do that. You see, the door of most hearts are closed to the gospel, just like the door in most houses are closed. And we can't open that door. We can knock on that door by praying for that person, but we can't open that door. The truth is, they can't even really open that door from the inside. Only God may open a door for our message. And so we pray to the only one who can open the door. We pray for the people that God puts us around. And as we pray for them, we imagine what Christ could do in their lives. I suspect that you are not praying for any of my neighbors, unless you live in my neighborhood. The reason is, you don't know my neighbors. I know my neighbors. So I'm the one that gets the chance to pray for them. I'm not praying for anyone you work with because I don't work where you work. I don't know the people you work with. You are there because you have a chance to pray for them. And this praying for people requires a great amount of intentionality because we all live busy lives. You know, I go to the bank not thinking, you know, while I'm standing in line, I should pray for this teller. I go to the bank, flipping through my phone, looking at the next thing that I need to do, deal with the teller, and then go on to the next thing. And we, we just tend to move through our days without really seeing people and without praying for them. And so this requires intentionality and focus. So I would encourage you, myself included, to just write down somewhere the names of three people in your life that you can do this with and just begin your day very quickly praying for these three individuals, just pausing long enough to pray for them and to imagine a new future for them in Christ. Just three people, start there. Step number two, invite them into our lives, homes, and church. This is the extend the thoughtful invitation part. 75 years ago now, it was, it was 75 years when a shy young woman invited a, a young man to a meeting in her church. Now, she would have never invited this man to this meeting because, as I said, she's pretty shy, but she had just turned this guy down for a date because he wasn't a follower of Christ. So imagine how awkward that is. Now she's taken awkward kind of to a new level. No, I'm not going to go out with you, but hey, do you want to come to church with me? Well, apparently she was cute enough and he was interested enough that he decided to go to church, I'm sure, thinking that this might lead to an eventual date. But it was at that meeting in that church 75 years ago that this young man heard the gospel for the very first time. And before the night was over, this young man, he went home, not at the church, but he went home and pondered these things and he ended up accepting the greatest of all gifts, forgiveness, eternal life. But the gift, of course, didn't stop with him. He couldn't keep this good news to himself, so he went home to tell his parents, then each of his seven siblings. And not quickly, but over the next about four or five years, in time, each, of, each member of his family accepted this gift just like he had. And then like him, 
they couldn't keep the good news of Jesus to themselves. You know, I'm, I will be, some of you heard this story, but I'll be forever grateful for the courage of that young teenage girl because she was my Aunt Jenny. And the man she invited was this guy, my Uncle Henry. Now, they're no longer alive, but it's through them that the gift of God's love made its way into my family and then to me and then to my children and now prayerfully my grandchildren and to many other people. But you know, it all began with one little invitation. I often think, I I wish I had video of that one moment when our entire family future changed. Just one little invitation. And that's the way it almost always happens. The future opens up with just a little invitation. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus invited Matthew to follow him. And what did Matthew do? Well, he followed Jesus, but then he turned around and invited his friends to a dinner with Jesus later that night. In John chapter 1, Jesus invited Andrew to follow him. And Andrew did follow him, but what did he do first? First, he turned around and invited his brother Peter. This is the way it always happens. In Revelation, we get a vision of the grand reception in heaven. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And here's what it says in Revelation 19.9. Then the angel said to me, write, quote, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You don't get into the wedding supper without an invitation. Now, God is the one that extends the invitation. The invitation is extended to everyone. But he almost always hand delivers it through people like you and me. Who is it that invited you? I mean, maybe you found your way to hearing, then understanding, then accepting the gospel on your own. But if that's the case, that's pretty rare. Almost unheard of. Usually, it's a number of people who have invited us to consider Christ. That's how it works. And now it's it's our turn to extend an invitation. Now, let's be clear. An invitation is always risky. And the reason is because invitation can be turned down. You can risk a no. This is why many people just kind of hold back because they don't want to take the risk. Every invitation, not just a gospel invitation, every invitation is risky. I remember the first time I had to work up the courage to invite my future wife on our first date. I mean, I dialed several times and hung up. (laughs) I'd given myself notes of, you know, how I wanted this to go. It's a risky thing. The same thing is true when you invite someone to consider Christ or you invite them to join you at church for some reason. And so the requirement to extend an invitation is this. You're going to have to leave your comfort zone. Here's a circle of comfort. You know, we all tend to, we prefer to operate in the circle. We can't always, but we prefer to operate in the circle of comfort because inside the circle are the people that, well, they're people that we know and people that were comfortable with. That's why it's a circle of comfort. Outside are people we don't know or people that we're not really that comfortable with. 
inside of the circle are people that we agree with. That's what makes the relationship comfortable. Outside of the circle are people, well, we don't agree with. And therefore, inside the circle, things are pretty predictable. Outside the circle, you never know what's going to happen. Things are unpredictable. And so, all things considered, we prefer to stay inside this circle of comfort. So why would we leave whatever our circle of comfort is to invite people into our lives, homes, and church? Well, in Acts 17, 26 through 27, we, we are given a very compelling reason. Here's what it says. It says, from one man, he, speaking of God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. I bumped into someone a couple weeks ago that I hadn't seen in four years. Now, why did, why did I bump into them? Well, for some reason, we both had decided to walk into the same Starbucks at the exact same time. It's what we call a coincidence. But according to these verses, there's more going on than just a coincidence. In a way that, honestly, none of us can fully understand, it turns out it was God who set that up. That's what it's saying here. He determines the times set for us and the exact places where we live. What this means is he's the one that takes our free choices and weaves them into the exact when and where of our days. Now, I don't know how he does that. I would love to understand. And that's the first question that people have whenever they read this and understand the implications is, how does God leave our freedom intact and then work out the details at this level? Seems like one would contradict the other. I don't know how that works. I just know that we're free and that God manages life at this level. That's what this is saying. I mean, I woke up that morning and I went to a Starbucks I almost never go to just because of the routine of my day. And then I ran into this person. And I can look at that and say, huh, that's weird. Or I can understand, huh, what is God doing now? So we'd love to have the why answered. Why does, or not, not how, we'd love to have the how answered. How does God do this? But what he does answer is the why. Why does God do this kind of stuff? Goes on to say, so that, that's the why, so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Even though he's not far, he's not far from any one of us. The problem is he's invisible. So you can have someone walking through their days and having God right there, because he's everywhere, and have them completely oblivious to the presence of God in their life. It happens all the time. So how is God going to show up in a person's life? Well, he's going to send you, he's going to send me to places like Starbucks. That's God's agenda. The problem was that morning, my only agenda at that time was coffee. <laughs> I wasn't thinking anything beyond coffee. And so I was shocked to see this person. And we started talking, and it wasn't long before I had this sense from the Holy Spirit that, you know, I should try to engage in a little more of a conversation. And so we began to catch up. And then I could tell he was needing to go, and I was needing to go. And so I invited him to church. 
And that made us both uncomfortable. <laughs> but like I said, invitations always do. And my thought was, you know, I haven't seen him in four years. Let's just make it uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I, I don't know when I'm going to see him again. I don't got time. There's always a risk when you extend a thoughtful invitation. But if we love people, we will share the gospel in the context of our real lives. And real life for me and for many of you includes Starbucks and many other places where we just run into people. And we think, huh. And God thinks, yes. And then number three, intentionally show and share the gospel of Christ. It turns out that the gospel must both be seen and heard. We would love it if it could only be seen and people would get it. I mean, if we could just be amazing enough that people would look at our lives and say, oh, I've got to follow Jesus Christ. <laughs> that just, I mean, it helps if we can be more amazing than less, but that is not enough. It's got to be seen and heard. And the reason is this, these two verses in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. It says, so then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those, and here's the key, entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. What are the secret things of God? Well, it's the secrets about who God is and how we are to relate to him and <coughs> what the problem is between us and him and what to do about that. Now, these things are secrets, not because God doesn't want anyone to know or he's trying to hide them. There are secrets because of the subject matter, God. I mean, as I said earlier, God's invisible. So what that means is you can't observe him with the human eye and come to understand who he is. We can't see him. And his thoughts far exceed our mental capacity. So he, we can't figure him out with the human mind. We can come up with all kinds of God ideas, but they're just guesses in the dark. We don't know. We can't see. So who God is, is just a mystery. It's an unseeable and unknowable secret. And the only way we can see it, the only way we can know it, is if God decides to step forward and say, all right, here's who I am, reveals himself. So over a span of 1,500 years, God did just that. He revealed himself. And his most important secrets to 40 people over 15 centuries. Now, he did this in ways that could be tested and verified in public so that we could know that these secrets actually came from him. And they weren't just individuals hallucinating or making things up because there's a long human history of that. And then these secrets were compiled and recorded into 66 books and combined into one book full of his secrets that we now call the Bible. Now, if you've decided to follow Jesus Christ, what this is saying is that you, like me, you have been entrusted with those secret things. The question is this, if God already went to all of the effort over 1,500 years to reveal and then publish his secrets in a book, why not just Leave it at that. 
If people want to know about God, if they want to know the secrets, they can read about it. If they want to know whether this is really true, they can check in all the evidence that supports that these words are from him. And they can make their own mind up. Why why do we need to get involved? The reason we need to get involved is that's usually not how secrets are learned. It's as people decide to pick up a book and read. You know, when my wife and I first became parents, like most new parents, we were struggling. I mean, things were a challenge. And we got desperate about how to figure this parenting thing out, just sleep and basic stuff that used to come natural was suddenly blown apart. Now, there were lots of books that offered parenting secrets out there. There's even more now. You can read a lot of parenting secret books, and that's fine. But what we did is we looked around us, and we picked a couple of friends who had kids that were behaving the way we wanted our kids to eventually behave, and who seemed to be able to sleep some. We didn't want to waste our time reading 10 books and figuring out 200 secrets. We just needed a couple, two or three secrets from somebody that seemed to actually know something. And that's what we did. We went and talked to them. And we got a couple secrets. And life began to change on the parenting front. This is how it works with the secret things of God. People have to see the secrets work out in your life before they want to know the secrets, usually. And God has entrusted his secret things to us. And now it's required that those who've been given this trust, us, we must prove faithful. We can't just sit on these secrets. If we, first of all, don't faithfully live by these secrets, then everyone's going to look at our life and say, there's no reason to ask them anything. So we got to live by these secrets, and then we got to talk about these secrets. If we don't do this, people aren't going to know. Who tells secrets? To each other, friends do. It's as we love the people that God puts in our path that we are building bridges that God will use to share these secrets. Now, the gospel contains two of the biggest secrets about God that most people don't know, and I just want to share these two secrets. Lots of secrets in the Bible. These two are critical to sharing the gospel. Secret number one is this. God is not okay with us. Now, let me be clear. God loves us, but he's not okay with what we've done. He's not okay with who we've become. Now, this is a complete shock to most people. That's because we all, all of us, spend a great deal of time justifying whatever we've done. We do this in our own head, and we'll do it to anyone who will listen or question us. We rationalize what we've done. What that means is we construct reasons to support our behavior and what we've said. If you're married, this is the basis of every argument. Reasons why I did this and said this that are understandable. We blame others for what we've done, also a part of every marriage argument. We minimize what we've done. We find comfort in the fact that others have done far worse than we have. We add this all up together and we justify ourselves. But God can see through all of this justifying and he's not fooled. He knows the truth about us. Jesus said this 
In Luke 16, 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valuable among men is detestable in God's sight. What this means is it's entirely possible, in fact, likely, that we can be okay with ourselves at the very same time God has gone, oh, he's, he's not pleased. At the very same time. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's because we pull out our moral ruler that is calibrated by the moral performance of other people, and we feel fine. Because on our ruler, you have to be in the bottom 10% to not be okay. And we're not bottom 10% people. But when God pulls out his ruler, he comes up with a very different reading than we do. God measures okay not by our ever-changing standards of good and bad, but by his never-changing standards. And on his ruler, we're not okay. We're all fall short. Now, God makes this fact very, very clear in the Bible. If you read the Bible, you can't read it for very long without discovering, oh, I'm not okay. This is why a lot of people don't read the Bible. They have the suspicion, if I read that, that's what it's going to tell me. So let's just not read it. They're right. We're not okay. And so instead of taking what the Bible says about us, most people, they are, they are completely comfortable with just feeling in their gut that God must be okay with them. Now, this always is amazing to watch. We all do this. We go with our gut on this. Now, now, these are rational people who would never take this approach in any other area of their life. I mean, if they're going to buy a house, they're never just going to go with their gut. Ah, looks good to me. No, they're going to get an inspection and they're going to get help from professionals and they're going to look at the data before they make a decision that big. But for some reason, when it comes to all of eternity, so many people are willing to, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm okay with God. Based on what evidence? You know what? I just, I think I'm fine. It's a huge gamble. Now, let me be clear. You can't just tell somebody, hey, by the way, you're not okay. <laughs> now, the way you share this, this secret is you share with them how you're not okay. And, it, you know, that's not, you don't have to look very far for evidence of that. Just share your own life. You know, I came to the conclusion that I just need to be honest about myself. I wasn't okay with God. That's secret number one. Secret number two is only Jesus can make us okay. Now, most people don't understand who Christ is. I mean, they know him as a historical figure, but that's pretty much it. And here's the challenge is we are proclaiming, as the Apostle Paul says, the mystery of Christ. Not just Christ. The mystery of Christ. That's why we can't just say, hey, you should accept Jesus and have people say, oh, all right. Because that makes no sense. Not because people are dense, but because Christ is a mystery. And mysteries require explanation. They require thought to understand. This is why Paul goes on in this passage to ask for prayer that he might what? Proclaim it clearly as he should. Reveal the mystery. Now let me leave you with my favorite verse in proclaiming this mystery. Some help on this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, 
God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin. That's Jesus. First human to ever walk the planet without sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what that cross thing was about. He was taking on the punishment of our sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The key to unlocking the mystery is the one word substitution. That's the key. Jesus' perfect life given in exchange, in substitute for our imperfect lives. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Much more can be said, but that's it. And what this means is Jesus is kind of like a, a sponge that has the power to absorb sin. Now, the key thing about any sponge absorbing any spill is that the sponge has to be dry. You know, have you ever tried to mop up a wet counter with a wet sponge? You're just spreading water around because the sponge is already soaked. And this is why we can't ever clean up our own messes because, you know, oh, there's a sin spill. Well, my life is full of sin, and so I, I'm just kind of moving sin around here. I can't mop it up. I need someone who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to be placed on my sin so that my sin could be absorbed and removed from me so that I could stand before God for all of eternity. Now, the key word is might. You know, a sponge sitting on the shelf does no good unless it's applied to the mess. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus is the only sin sponge there is. But until we decide to ask him to remove our sin and follow him, our sin is untouched. Sometimes people think, well, I, I, I just, I'll, I'll make a moral U-turn. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of change my life. But if you look at it, it's really, we all keep sinning. So it's kind of like while we're trying to mop up our mess, we're pouring water on the sponge. We just can't ever get ahead. We can't, we can't, we can't find forgiveness in our own efforts. Now, most people do not know this. They don't understand this. Not because they, they're mentally insufficient, they just have never heard this. And if we love them, really love them, we're not okay with that. And this is why transformation is demonstrated. Not just in the way we relate to people one-on-one, -on -one, it is. Not just in the way we team together, it is. But in the way we share the gospel. And as we share the gospel, we will imagine a new future for them in Christ and begin to pray to that end. That's where it starts. And then we'll take the risk to invite them into our lives, into our homes for a meal, and then to church. And finally, we will look for and then take the opportunities to intentionally show and share the gospel of Christ. You know, everybody's looking for the secret to life. Everybody is. Most people think it's money. And they're going to be disappointed. The only way they're going to find the real secret of life is they must see it in my life and your life, and then they must hear about it. So, who are your three? Maybe you thought of the first one as we began, but who are the other two? I'm going to spend some time this week thinking about, again, who are my three?
that I'm going to imagine and pray about on a daily basis. So let's pray. Father, we, um, well, first of all, we thank you for the people that you sent to invite us. I thank you for my Aunt Jenny. It's just amazing to me how such a shy, introverted teenage girl would end up having such an impact on so many lives by just a simple invitation. I thank you also in my life personally for Tom. And we all think of the people that have invited us and we thank you. And now we ask that you would show us who we need to invite. Who are the three that we need to imagine and pray for and invite and intentionally show and share the gospel. Father, we long for this good news to transform many, many people in our community. So I pray that you would guide us to that end. You give us courage. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.